She was in prison, she was jailed, she was fined. Um, she was sentenced to expulsion. She was expelled from the Commonwealth of Virginia for 25 years on pain that if she ever returned, uh, she would automatically get a five-year sentence inside. Um, she found a lawyer and she appealed. And she got all the way to the Supreme Court. And when her lawyer delivered the paperwork, the, the, the clerk said, ha ha, we've been waiting for this one. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. You just heard the late John Blundell speaking on the topic of Ladies for Liberty, women who made a difference in American history. Blundell was Director General and Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs. He passed away on July 22, 2014, at the age of 61. This is a presentation that was delivered as part of the 2013 Acton Lecture Series. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Our speaker today, John Blundell, has a long association with Acton Institute, but an even longer association with think tanks and the promotion of ideas of individual liberty, free enterprise, and limited government. John has had a number of key roles and positions within what we might call this movement for liberty. He has been a philanthropist, he has been a think tank executive, and he has been an advisor and mentor and board member of any number of organizations working in this space. And those details you can find in the program that we've given you today. And we're here today to hear about one of his more recent books, but like many prolific authors, not his most recent one, that's the Margaret Thatcher one previously mentioned, but Ladies for Liberty, Women Who've Made a Difference in American History. So I won't talk about that at the moment because you'll hear more about that shortly. But just a final note about John's long association with Acton Institute. I myself have known John since April of 1990 when he gave me a fellowship to spend a month in Washington DC at his organization that he uh, headed at the time, the Atlas Economic Research Foundation. The purpose of the fellowship was literally to take the time to map out the mission, uh, the mission statements, the bylaws, the proposed program activities of the Acton Institute. Naturally, it was also a rich time for me, being in the Beltway, to network uh, with other existing think tanks and to help solidify the vision for Acton Institute. Now, John had met Father months before, or perhaps even a year before, we haven't quite determined between us, uh, and had been one of those early folks encouraging him to create a think tank in this undeveloped space between religion and economics. So in quite literally a real way, John has been instrumental in the founding of, of Acton. And uh, beyond that, as a friend and advisor, although these many years as we've kind of grown up. 
So very grateful to welcome John back to Grand Rapids and to the Acton Institute. Please join me in welcoming John Blundell. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming along today. You might um, be asking yourself, how come this uh, British male economist <laughs> is writing books that are described on the back as American women's history? Uh, well, it all starts with Margaret Thatcher, like so many things in my life. And um, back in about 2005, 2006, I was giving some speeches about Margaret um, in uh, Colorado, in Washington, D.C., Virginia, and the North Carolina, North and South Carolina. And uh, I got such a wonderful response everywhere I went to my speeches about Margaret that uh, I thought, I'd better bottle this up. I'd better get this down on paper. And so for two consecutive summers, I wrote um, my biography of Margaret, um, specifically for an American audience. Um, so it's written in American English, not English English. So the lower sixth becomes the 11th grade, and the upper sixth becomes the 12th grade, and everything's explained in footnotes. And um, that led to more speaking engagements uh, around America. And everywhere I went, I, I would find somebody in the audience, probably about the third or fourth person to ask a question, would say, why haven't we had a great woman in our history like Margaret Thatcher? And I'd immediately say, whoa, you know, your history is, you don't have much history, uh, but the little you've got, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's stuffed with great women. Uh, Margaret once observed in a speech in Arizona that um, um, history is one thing that uh, we in England produce more of than we consume. Um, anyway, that's just an aside. Um, and I would rattle off a few names, and uh, people would recognize the obvious ones, you know, Martha Washington, say, Ayn Rand. Um, but... Um, when I got into mentioning the Anne Hutchinsons or the Bina West Millers or the Mildred Lovings, all great women who fought for liberty, uh, recognition would go through the, through, the, through the floor. It would just drop to close to zero. And uh, I would come back off these speaking trips. We were then living in uh, Port Charlotte, Florida, um, uh, beefing and moaning and complaining about uh, uh, all these uh, people out there in America who didn't under understand their history thoroughly. And you know how respectful teenagers can be to their parents. Uh, one evening in a Chinese takeout in Port Charlotte, my then 19-year-old turned to me and he said, uh, for heaven's sakes, Dad, he said, shut up, stop being so boring, and just write a book about them all. <laughs> and so that led to uh, Ladies for Liberty, uh, Women Who Made a Difference in American History. And it came out two years ago with 22 ladies and 20 chapters, and um, did very well. And uh, last summer I sat down and added five more chapters, uh, five more ladies. So it's now 27 ladies um, in 25 um, chapters. And this second expanded edition is the one that Jennifer is selling at the back of the room, which I'll be happy to sign uh, after the event is over. So how did I choose my 25 chapters or my 27 ladies? Well, first of all, they had to be dead. <laughs> or as a lady in Indianapolis said to me the other day, she said, John, don't say dead say that their contribution had to be complete. <laughs> so their contribution had to be complete. There's no open-ended stories here. Um, uh, they'd lived their lives and, um, uh, and um, they've gone elsewhere. Uh, secondly, they had to have some inner core of principle that one could latch onto and identify. 
Uh, and they had to be pro-liberty, pro-individual responsibility, free markets, private property rights, and the rule of law in general. Uh, third, there had to be some long-run jaw-dropping achievement. Um, I didn't include uh, the um, Betty Zanes or the Molly Pitchers, uh, who's, if they ever existed in the case of Molly Pitcher, uh, because uh, their contribution probably lasted about 15 minutes. I was much more interested in women who fought for 50 years rather than 15 minutes. Fourth, I wanted a range of stories, so there's only uh, one Western novelist, or there's one of everything, if you like. I, I didn't have multiple uh, people uh, fighting the same battle, so there's as little overlap uh, uh, as possible. So, the, for example, I didn't include Susan B. Anthony with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I just did Cady Stanton. And they had to be a really good story. Um, uh, a story that grips and informs. So let me very quickly take a romp through the 25 chapters and speak for about a minute and a minute and a half on, on each one. Uh, I ordered the ladies by date of birth, um, given that the first one was born in July of 1591 and the last one was born in July of 1939. You actually see the whole history of America unfold uh, through their lives. Uh, as this book unfolds. I will occasionally ask you questions. And only put up your hand if you're willing to be called. <laughs> so I do occasionally call people. We had a bit of fun last night at Northwood with me uh, picking on people in the audience. Um, my book starts with Anne Hutchinson, born 1591, died 1643. And the opening line of my book reads, if America has a founding mother, then Anne Marbury Hutchinson has foremost claim to the title. Anybody recall who Anne Hutchinson was? She's your founding mother. Come on. <laughs> you do. Yes. That's quite well put. She didn't die for her faith. She died by accident in an Indian massacre when the Indians thought uh, they were going into a small village where there wouldn't be anybody, that they would have all fled. And she hadn't fled, and they didn't know what to do, so they, ma they massacred her. Um, she was born in Lincolnshire in England. I'll spend a little time on Anne, because some of them I'll go over very quickly. And she was born in the same county as Margaret Thatcher. And um, uh, her father was a very recalcitrant uh, priest, and he was complaining about how bishops were appointed and how the new clergy was so badly trained. And he got sentenced to five years of house arrest. And he was a school teacher during the week and a priest on the weekend. So what did he do under five years of house arrest? He set up school at home and educated all his children. So very rare for a girl around about 1600. She got a thoroughly good education. Uh, she married well and... Um, it was very prosperous, bore her husband something like 14, 15, 16 children, which was the norm of the day, um, became a great follower of a man called the Reverend Cotton, um, who preached um, a covenant of grace rather than a covenant of works, which translated into political philosophy, um, a covenant of grace is very much a bottom-up libertarian approach to your relationship with God, whereas a covenant of works is very much a male-dominated, top-down, you-do-what-you're-told kind of approach to finding your way. And um, 
She started conventicles in her home. In those days, the average home had three books. There was no radio or TV or anything. So these conventicles were where she would explain, and they grew to be twice a week, every Tuesday and Thursday, in her home, where she would explain what the local minister had said uh, in his sermon. And the church services in those days would last four hours. The sermon would probably be 90 minutes. And um, it was the big show in town. And um, she, she would explain. She, she um, started traveling to listen to the Reverend Cotton. It was six hours on horseback there, four-hour service, six hours on horseback back, back. And he was in so much trouble with the authorities, he fled uh, with two of her boys uh, to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And a year later, she followed with the rest of her family and her husband and her mother-in-law. And she was soon in trouble with the Massachusetts uh, authorities. Um, again, she was running her bi-weekly conventicles, uh, explaining what uh, the, the ministers were saying, and preaching this covenant of grace rather than a covenant of works. And she was tried in Massachusetts, and she was expelled. She was tried twice, found guilty twice, and she was expelled along with her followers. And they um, tramped south for six days, and she is the only woman in American history to have founded or co-founded a state. She co-founded Rhode Island and introduced many uh, Jeffersonian principles into Rhode Island and its founding. Um, a lot of things like trial by jury, a separation of powers, uh, all these things which just weren't being practiced. I mean, these Bay Colony, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was an extraordinarily authoritarian society. And she introduced all kinds of concepts that we would later label uh, Jeffersonian a uh, hundred years before he was uh, even thought of. And like I said, she died uh, inadvertently in an Indian massacre. She always preached uh, fair trading, that Indians uh, should trade fairly with them and not abuse them, take advantage of them. You should respect their property rights. And she thought she was safe uh, from attack, uh, but she wasn't. Mercy Otis Warren. She did many things. Um, she, unlike Al Gore, she actually did invent the email of her day. Uh, she and her husband and two of their friends were the group in her front room at her house who conceived uh, the, the idea of the committees of correspondence that kept 314 communities in the 13 colonies uh, well informed of what, what was going on. So we re replaced rumor and half-truth uh, with, with fact and truth. Um, she wrote many plays and poems anonymously because women didn't write plays and poems back then uh, that satirized and savaged the Brits they were never performed, the plays, but they circulated from tent to tent and, and kept the revolutionary soldiers uh, cheered up. Um, after the, uh, the war, uh, she became known as the conscience of the American Revolution. And she was the first woman um, to write a history of the United States. It's probably here. I know it's here in the Acton uh, Library. It's over there. I saw it earlier. Um, and um, it was a three-volumed history but it's now published by the Liberty Press of Indianapolis, Indiana, in two volumes uh, with an excellent um, introduction. And it's somewhere in the middle of those two stacks. Um, she was a, a great woman. Her, her um, name, Otis, was her maiden name, and she married Mr. Warren. Um, she was another girl who got a good education. Her father hired a local minister to prepare her two older brothers for Harvard. And she said to her father, can I sit in the back and listen in? And he said, apart from Latin and Greek, that, that's when you go to your mother to be trained in the domestic sphere. 
so she was trained to Harvard entry level in all subjects except Latin and Greek. And her brother, um, Gemiotis, was the famous uh, revolutionary who um, Adams later said uh, lit the fuse uh, of the revolution with his courtroom speech where he coined uh, the phrase um, uh, no taxation without representation in a, in a long five-hour courtroom speech. He was later be beaten to a pulp by the Brits in a Brit coffee house that he foolishly entered and never regained his full mental faculty. And she took up uh, and got, became an activist uh, because of that. Martha Washington, she nearly didn't make my book, but in the end I thought, well, she was probably the least educated of pretty much all the women in my book. Um, but she did one thing and one thing only, which I thought deserved a, an entry, and that is she traveled for six consecutive winters to George's uh, winter camp, and that kept him there, and it kept him happy, and it kept him, pre, pre, uh, if you like, formed a barrier between him and an incessant uh, uh, barrage of, of visitors. Now, if she hadn't gone, he'd have come home, and if he'd left, the officers would have left and the men would have left, and I doubt whether the army would have uh, come together fast enough in the spring, uh, and I think the Brits would have won um, if uh, she had insisted on staying at home uh, and he'd gone home to visit. Abigail Adams, well, she did everything. First woman to marry a president and give birth to a president. Only Barbara Bush has since done that, uh, because the sixth president was, her husband was the second president and her son was the sixth uh, president. I mean, she refused to own a slave, even though she could afford them. She taught black people to read and write when it was illegal. She let the militia train on her land. She melted her pots and pans to turn them into bullets. Um, she took um, the young um, uh, Adams, who became the sixth president, on his eighth birthday, I think it was, to, to watch the Battle of Bunker Hill. Come on, Sonny, we're going to watch a battle today. <laughs> and they watched from the top of the next door hill. They weren't actually on Bunker Hill. And Bunker Hill, of course, was claimed as a victory by the Brits. Uh, but for every um, uh, dead um, revolutionary, there were four or five dead lobsterbacks, as they were called. And um, it was very much a Pyrrhic uh, victory. She wrote thousands of letters to her husband. She confided in her husband. She was much more principled than her husband. Um, she confided in him that um, she coined that favorite uh, phrase, remember the women. And he, dis he didn't. And he got chastised. And she told him in one letter, um, many of these letters survived, by the way. Um, uh, she told him in one letter, um, um, what was it? Uh, I feel freer to advise you and counsel you in letters and correspondence than I do when we're face to face, uh, when I feel I should be sort of back off a little bit. Um, so she was um, a plumb line. And she was also a great entrepreneur. I mean, he was away for years at a time, years and years and years at a time. And she kept the family business going, didn't just keep the family business going, the farms and the other businesses. I mean, she grew them. The Grintke sisters of Charleston, South Carolina. No takers. The Grimke sisters, Sarah and Angelina Grimke. Uh, they were Southern royalty. They have on both sides of their family tree nothing but merchants, generals, aides to George Washington, governors, deputy governors. I mean, you name it. It's there on their family tree. They own multiple estates in the South, a big house in Charleston, 
Um, they, they had everything. And, um, you know, several hundred slaves. Uh, the girls, when they were young, were assigned a personal slave who slept outside their bedroom and was on duty 24 hours a day. Well, Angelina and her sister Sarah didn't like this, and they rebelled. They started to teach their uh, servants how to read and write, which their father had an absolute fit of anger when he found out, because it was, it was illegal. I mean, it was, a, it was a crime to teach your slaves to read and write. Um, eventually, they, they, they left home. They moved first to Philadelphia, then to New York, and then to, to Boston, and they became two of the most brilliant um, strategists in, in the fight for abolition. Um, they were the first women to give testimony before any state assembly. I think it was about 1847. They gave evidence before the state assembly of, um, up in Boston, Massachusetts. First women ever to do so. When Angelina married a leading light in the anti-slavery movement, and the newspapers reported that America's most mobbed man, because he went out speaking and was often mobbed, you know that verb? Um, physically threatened, throw, things thrown at him and so on. But America's most mobbed man had just gone and married America's most notorious woman. Um, her sister never married, but basically became their housekeeper. Uh, but they kept on segmenting their market. They wrote a pamphlet for the clergymen of the South. And then they wrote a pamphlet for the married women of the South. They were very good at marketing and of crafting their message to identify different segments of the, their market. And one of their books, um, Slavery As It Really Is, was a very big bestseller. And one of our future um, ladies I'll come to in a minute, um, um, in fact, I'll, yes, I'll come to her next but one, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe uh, kept that under her pillar uh, as she wrote uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. The Grimke sisters, by the way, there is absolutely no sign. And I've been to Charleston, South Carolina twice in the last four years, both times taking half a day to ferret around, and I can't find a single bit of evidence. There's no statue, there's no plaque on a house, there's nothing um, to indicate that they ever lived or, or came from that uh, wonderful city. Sojourner Truth. Now, some of you must know Sojourner Truth. Um, she was... Um, a great uh, campaigner, a great abolitionist. She was a slave, but she was a freed slave in, in New York. New York went through some very complex legal maneuvers in the 1840s to free the slaves. She was a very unpopular slave with her fellow slaves because she worked so hard. She showed them up, and they took her on one side and threatened her with bodily harm if, they, if she didn't slow down a little bit, and she refused to slow down, and um, she was a big woman. She was well over six foot, uh, she was extremely black. I think all four of her grandparents had come out of Africa. There had been no interracial marriage in her family tree. In fact, she was so commanding in her presence uh, that uh, once when she was speaking, a, a white doctor took up bets with uh, all the other men in the room um, that, that she was a man. She was a female imposter. And 50 bucks back then was, you know, that was, you'd probably have to multiply that by uh, 20 to inflation adjust today. It would probably be about $1,000, $2,000 today. And um, this doctor get up, got up before the audience, before she had a chance to really get going with her speech, and challenged them, said that he wanted uh, some of the white women to take her behind the stage, have her undress, um, 
and proved that um, she was a woman. And Sojourner Truth uh, said no, uh, she wouldn't go behind the stage and uh, embarrass these white women in, in this way. Uh, she would, in fact, strip off on the stage, which she did. <laughs> um, she um, she um, spent many decades campaigning from Massachusetts clear across here to Michigan. Um, she would uh, take her um, little buggy uh, drawn by two mules, uh, her photograph to which she'd put her mark. She couldn't read or write. She put her X on her photograph, her hymn sheet of songs that had been typed up for and printed, and her uh, biography, which she had dictated to an amanuensis. And she had a very friendly printer who would print them, say, a thousand at a time, then only take payment after she'd sold them. And that was how she financed her way from Massachusetts back into to Michigan and back into uh, pulling up in little crossroads, little communities, uh, standing on the, the buggy at the back behind the two mules, belting out a few hymns. And then when people came out of the, um, the, the fields, out of the workhouses, out of their homes, uh, she would um, uh, give them a, a speech and then sell them uh, books and hymn sheets and pictures of herself and move on to the next town. And she spent uh, many decades uh, doing that. Um, I believe she's buried not, not too far from here. And um, uh, last time I shared a car journey with Father Robert, he was actually going to go and try and find her, um, her, her burial spot for me. Is there a place south of here called Battle Creek? I think that's where Sojourner Truth ended up um, reuniting her family, because when she got freed as a slave, uh, not all of her children were freed. Uh, but I think eventually, by the 1860s, maybe, 1870s, uh, she settled at Battle Creek, and that's where she's buried. And if anybody can find her grave, do let me know what state it's in, because it would be terrible if it was uh, neglected. Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin, there were three books that were mega bestsellers in the 19th century. Number one is the Bible, and number two equal are Samuel Smiles, a wonderful book, Self-Help, uh, published in England, and then pirated over here because there weren't copyright laws back then, and in turn, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was pirated in England. Too. Thank you very much. Um, it was a massively popular book. I mean, it was hugely popular. The South hated it. A, a, a priest in Maryland was sent to jail for 10 years for owning a copy. Uh, people in the South would uh, cut body parts off their slaves and mail them to her. Um, her sisters kind of formed a phalanx around her. Uh, one dealt with her correspondence, one dealt with to get better terms from her publisher, all doing different jobs, and the whole sort of industry built up around uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, the book was so um, popular um, uh, that when uh, she met Lincoln, um, he is supposed to have said to her, so you're the little lady that started my great world war, huh? Um, uh, what's the name of the little girl in Uncle Tom's Cabin? Is it? Topsy, maybe that's her nickname. I'm trying to remember her name. That little girl, though, who's the angelic um, figure in, um, in um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, I, I think something like 500 babies in Boston alone were named after her 
in the 12 months that followed uh, the, the publication of uh, Uncle, Tom's, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, it's here in, in my... Um, um, that major character. That was how much the, the, the book influenced society when it came out in the early 1850s. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a writer of the Seneca Falls Declaration of Women's Rights, which is written in very Jeffersonian language, a great advocate for women's rights from, for 50-odd years, from the eight, late 1840s through to the day before her death in 1902, when she was busy writing to the president's wife, uh, uh, the then president's wife, about votes for women. Uh, she took on every issue and was completely plumb line on every issue. She was uh, at home having babies, whereas Susan B. Anthony uh, never married, and um, uh, so she could be on the road. But it was Katie Stanton who'd write her speeches and position papers, and she was the brains, basically, behind uh, Susan B. Anthony. And later, when her children had grown up, uh, became more active herself. And she and uh, Susan B. Anthony always argued about strategy, because uh, Katie Stanton wanted to be plumb line on every issue, whereas uh, Susan B. Anthony wanted to say, well, well, there's 20 issues here. Which one do we stand the best chance of winning on? Okay, well, let's take that one issue. Let's divide it into 20 sub-issues, and which one do we have the best chance of winning on? And Katie Stanton said, this is rubbish. It'll take a thousand years if you go that way. And um, they, they often argued over strategy. Clara Barton. I don't think she was a nurse. Who's, who, who said that? She was a teacher. She was a teacher, and she was a very good teacher. She was such a good teacher that um, she was parachuted in. Every, every year, the school board for her county would say, which is the worst school? Oh, it's this one. And which is the worst class? Oh, it's this one. And she, year after year, she was given a different assignment and, and sent into turnaround schools. She then drew up a business plan for a school, and... Um, um, it, it was founded and proved very successful, but they put a man in as the headmaster. And she said, forget this. And she moved to Washington, D.C., and she became one of only three female employees of the federal government. And all three worked in the patent office as clerks. And then um, the Civil War started. And, of course, many of the early battles were in the D.C., you know, 10 or 12, 15, 20 miles out of D.C. And she saw the wounded um, coming back in, and she heard firsthand of how desperate things were at the the front. And she didn't steal the stuff, um, but she liberated it. Uh, she found the army colonel who had the great big warehouses full of all the drugs and dressings and food and liquor and all kinds of stuff that was needed at the front. And she organized the, the um, and, and she, she got the stuff there. And um, she continued right through the war, getting the stuff needed. Now, the army got better and better as the war went on, the Army of the North, about doing it itself, and some friction grew up between her private initiative and the army supply corps people that finally got their act in order. Uh, but she was very active, and at the end of the war, she had a nervous breakdown. Her doctor shipped her off to Europe to recoup, and it was in Geneva that a group of men came to see her, and told her about the Red Cross. She'd never heard of the Red Cross, but they'd heard of her. 
The reason I think you might think she was a nurse is she was often called the Florence Nightingale, the Florence Nightingale of America. And Florence, of course, was a nurse. But Clara, I don't think, ever trained as a nurse. She, she probably had some rudimentary training, but not qualified. And um, she came back to America. The, the Red Cross people had 14 nations signed up at that point. And she came back and tried to find out why America had refused to sign up. And it was all to do with the Monroe Doctrine. America didn't sign treaties back then except to end wars. And it wasn't about to start signing up to this. So she lobbied three different presidents and it eventually uh, got the American Red Cross uh, founded and, and built that, although uh, along the way there were many accusations of uh, fin financial impropriety to which she replied something on the lines of, well, if you think I'm going to get a receipt when all the bombs are falling around me and the bullets are whizzing past my head, uh, you've got another thing coming. And um, she saw off the criticism, although she was eventually uh, removed. She has a major Michigan connection. Can anybody remember what that is? When she got the Red Cross going, um, people rather thought of it as something that would sort of happen sort of overseas. If there was a battle in Cuba or somewhere in Central America or whatever, it was sort of like seen as a sort of foreign thing. And um, the idea that it could help at home hadn't really registered very much when, when um, uh, it was being founded. Uh, but, but here in Michigan, um, down, I mean, you, you call it the, what do you call it, the mitten state? Um, it looks something like that. Uh, down in this corner, uh, there were three counties um, that there was a drought, and three counties burnt to the ground. Over 500 people were killed. And the, um, I forget which year this was, it's, it's in my book, and um, the Red Cross rushed in. And it was the first time and with, with enormous supplies. Uh, just one of her chapters alone, the Dansville, I think, New York chapter, uh, supplied what an inflation adjusted. All the figures in my book, I, as an economist, I inflation adjust. Uh, inflation adjusted um, supplied $220,000 worth of supplies. Um, and this really proved to the federal government and the state governments that this Red Cross outfit really was able and willing um, to, to act very promptly and very generously at, at a time of, of crisis. So that was um, Michigan's role in the... Harriet Tubman. Now you must have heard of Harriet Tubman. The uh, underground, the conductor on the Underground Railroad. As she once said, uh, my train never le left the tracks and I never lost a passenger. Um, and she was an uh, escaped slave. She found her way to the north, which before the Fugitive Slave Act meant Pennsylvania. After the Fugitive Slave Act, you had to get up to Canada. And she set up shop in Philadelphia. She worked for 10 months every year as a maid or a cook or something. And then every uh, November, late November, would take off, heading back into um, the south uh, for two reasons. One, the nights were longer, and she always traveled at night, so she wouldn't be recognized as black person, wearing black person's clothing. Um, secondly, the propensity of slaves to join her underground escape route was, was at its highest between Christmas and New Year, because that's when the auctions would take place. And if a farmer had had a bad year, his most liquid asset would be one of his slaves. And these auctions took place. And so the, 
the slaves would know full well how their master had done. You know, they'd know full well if it had been a good year or a bad year. And if it had been a bad year, they'd be thinking, oh, am I going to be sold? And of course, being sold, there was no slavery to the north. So being sold automatically meant you were headed south. And they'd heard horror stories about, you know, the slaves in Maryland weren't treated too badly compared to the ones in the deep south. And, um, and so she would uh, use a complex system of signals to let her presence be known. And um, people that uh, wanted to flee or felt they were destined for the auction block uh, would, um, would find her. And, and every winter she would lead them uh, back um, up to, to Philadelphia. And she did many other things. Uh, Bina West Miller. Not a single hand. Okay. Bina West Miller of Port Huron, Michigan. No? Well, she was Bina West. She only married late in life. She was Bina West, Sabina West. Golly. No? You were just scratching, were you? I thought you were. Um, she was a school teacher, a very gifted school teacher in um, Port Huron, when um, she heard that the mother of two of her best pupils, a boy and a girl, had uh, died. And within a few days, she heard even worse news, and that was the father, um, without the mother at home, contributing in the domestic sphere, um, had put the children up for adoption. And the boy had gone to this town and had immediately been sent out to clean stables by his new family. And the girl had gone to this town and immediately been sent out to clean uh, rooms in a boarding house by her new family, and their education was over. And Bina was furious about this. And she reasoned that you know, if the man had died, the family would still be together because the man belonged to uh, an association, a working men's association or a friendly society. Um, there would have been a check and there would have been a regular payment and people would have rallied round from his order, um, from his society. And um, she felt it very unfair that women didn't enjoy this advantage, that when they died, their families were split up automatically. Either the man married, and if you've ever done any, any genealogy, you might have been surprised at how quickly some men married. Well, it, was, it wasn't love, it was economics, pure and simple, because I mean, if they didn't marry you know, within a few weeks, it, probably the family was split asunder. And if there was some friendly spinster down the street, well, you know, let's bring her in. Um, and so she basically popularized life insurance for women. And the company she set up, the Women's Benefit Association, is still there in Port Huron, insuring hundreds of thousands of women. And um, of course, today, there are many, many, many places that women can get life insurance, um, probably hundreds. Uh, but the company she started still exists there today. I'll have to speed up, I see. Um, Laura Ingalls Wilder and Rose Wilder Lane. Little House on the Prairie series. Um, we now know, although Laura Ingalls Wilder's name is on all nine books, we're now pretty sure that Rose Wilder Lane wrote them. Um, they've done quite well, both of them, both the mother and the, uh, and, and, and the daughter, and they lost everything in 1929 uh, because she persuaded her parents to put everything, like she had everything in the market, and it all went. And her mother had these notes and we now know, we're now pretty sure that it was Rose Wilder Lane that turned the notes, because she was an accomplished journalist and novelist, where her mother had 
maybe he's written a newspaper column or two, but that was about it. Um, uh, and of course, they have been enormously influential. It was President Reagan's favorite TV program. Uh, Margaret Thatcher's, by the way, was a TV, two TV series, one called Yes, Minister, and its sequel, Yes, Prime Minister. <laughs> and if you ever see those, uh, uh, do watch them and know that they were Margaret's favorite TV program. She didn't watch much TV, but she watched those. Alice Paul. Gosh, you really are in need of my book, aren't you? <laughs> Alice Paul. She was the mother of the 19th Amendment. And don't go asking me what the 19th Amendment was, please. Um, she was a Quaker. She went over to England, and she met the um, Pankhurst. And they taught her the rather um, more confrontational methods of campaigning, should we say. And in, in those days, there were two words for ladies who were keen on the vote. There were suffragists, and there were suffragettes. Uh, suffragists uh, couldn't be invited into polite society because they would bore everybody silly. Um, they would probably throw a brick through the window of the local post office on their way to dinner, and they'd probably set the post office on fire on the way back back from dinner. Uh, and they were the hardcore people prepared to go to prison. Having gone to prison, they didn't just do the time, they refused to eat, and they had to be force-fed. Suffragettes, on the other hand, could be invited to dinner. And if the topic arose, they would say their little piece, and that would be it. And they wouldn't put a brick through the post office window, and they wouldn't set fire to the post office. And she came back to America, where they were mostly suffragettes. And she came back from England as a suffragist, and injected this element of, uh, uh, of civil uh, disobedience into the American debate. And when World War I came along, the suffragettes in England, uh, suffragists in England immediately gave up and threw all their effort into the, the war effort, all their time into the war effort, reasoning that they would get thanked with the vote after the war was over. Well, that was, Alice Paul wasn't about to buy that argument. She said, look, we were promised the vote after the Civil War, and we all threw our, those of us who'd been campaigning before the Civil War, then joined the war effort, and we got nothing, and we're not about to stop. And so she just harried and harried and harried Woodrow Wilson. Um, she even got uh, Woodrow Wilson's daughter to join her group. And um, eventually, uh, the Constitutional Amendment started wending its way through, and, and eventually we got, we got the 19th Amendment. But it only passed by, in the last two states, uh, they needed 35. Uh, the 34th was appropriate enough West Virginia, the 34th state, and it passed by one vote. And the 35th was Tennessee, and it passed by one vote. So uh, that was Alice Paul, mother of the 19th Amendment. Isabel Patterson was a great author. Uh, Pat, she was called a uh, very principled libertarian. And, but she's in my book really for three reasons. Um, she mentored Ayn Rand, who of course had been brought up in Russia, knew nothing of American politics, economics, philosophy, history, um, when she came here in her early 20s. Uh, she mentored Ayn Rand. She told Ayn Rand to make her two major novels, um, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, timeless. So if you look at them, there is no reference to who the president is, or there's not much reference to, to anything that can remotely begin to date the books. It's all about ideas and character and, and, and so on. 
And she gave it Ayn Rand, or between them they hatched the plot for Atlas Shrugged in a late night conversation, telephone conversation. Pat gave, uh, she also, when The Fountainhead first came out, Pat had a um, coast to coast uh, book. It was called Turns with a Book, Turns with a Bookworm. And it was 1,800 words every week that she had syndicated right across America. And she plugged Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead something like 17 times uh, before sales really began to take off. And it was in states like Michigan. It wasn't on the East Coast. It was in states like Michigan and Ohio and Indiana and Kansas and so on where Pat had a great following uh, that sales of Rand's novels really took off. Lila Wallace. Well, without Lila Wallace, you lot would not have grown up on Reader's Digest. And Reader's Digest in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s and early 90s was a very important magazine of ideas. It's now full of pap and pop, and um, diets and, and, and the like, and I've personally stopped reading it. Um, but um, it, it used to be a very, very important organ for liberty. Um, and um, it, it was uh, started by Lila's husband, but without her, he wouldn't have stood a chance. Uh, she raised the venture capital. She ran the marketing. Uh, every time he suffered from depression, um, she uh, cheered him up and made him go on. And that was like almost weekly. Um, lots of the great marketing schemes that built subscriptions um, were, were her schemes. She ran human relations for the company because that was her background, human relations. Uh, she did everything. And it's quite clear to me that without her, we wouldn't have had the great Reader's Digest of the, say, the 40s through the 80s. Vivian Kellams. She was a great tax protester. Before World War II, um, employees took care of their own taxes. There was no withholding. Withholding was introduced as a temporary wartime measure in World War II. And she went along with it for the sake of the war. She had 100 employees. They made grips. I don't know what a grip is, but apparently grip, grip something and moves it from A to B. She once told MacArthur that every single shell fired by your Navy in World War II had been moved from A to B by one of her grips. And she had 100 employees in, in um, I think it was Hartford, Connecticut. I think it was definitely in Connecticut. And after a couple of years had gone by after the war and the withholding was still going on and she was having to do all this work and if she got it wrong, she got fined, even though she'd never been trained to do it and, and, and it was slave labor. Um, she stopped withholding from her 100 employees. She made sure they counted every penny. She made sure they set up bank accounts. She made sure, and the IRS never queried that every single penny had been paid. But they still went for her. And they basically fought to a bloody draw. She never got her day before the Supreme Court, um, but both sides ended up withdrawing. And she lived out the rest of 15 years of her life, 25 years of her life, as a great icon to the tax protest movement. Taylor Caldwell. I bet some of you grew up reading Taylor Caldwell's novels. There's great blockbusting, yes, a gentleman there. There's great blockbusters that were so big, uh, Hollywood could not digest them. And um, they forced, she forced the invention of the TV miniseries. Two out of the first three ever um, 
t of, of, of her TV um, um, miniseries in the 1970s were, were Taylor's, Caldwell's um, uh, books. Um, she was um, very um, ideological. She once wrote to the IRS that she was the only conservative author in the entire United States. Um, here um, is an extract. I'll just read you one line from her 1965 novel, A Pillar of Iron. Antonius heartily agreed with Cicero that the budget should be balanced, that the treasury should be refilled, that the public debt should be reduced, that the arrogance of the generals should be tempered and controlled, that assistance to foreign lands should be curtailed lest Rome become bankrupt, that the mobs should be forced to work and not depend on government for subsistence, and that prudence and frugality should be put into practice as soon as possible. That's, uh, that's Taylor Caldwell in one of her 40-odd uh, uh, novels. Claire Booth Luce, uh, well, she did pretty much everything. I mean, she wrote books, she wrote movie scripts, um, she was an editor, she was a politician, she was a diplomat. Uh, she was offered, um, I think, either Labour Secretary or Transportation Secretary, and turned it down and was the first woman um, to be a senior diplomat. She was the US ambassador to Rome in, a, in the 1950s and faced down uh, the communist trade unions uh, there. And of course, was married to the great uh, magazine entrepreneur, uh, Henry uh, Luce. Um, she, she did everything. Ayn Rand, I don't think I need to say much about. I mean, when, when the uh, economy went south back in 2008, um, her books were selling about half a million a year each. Uh, after 50 years, quite remarkable for a novel still to be selling half a million copies a year. And what, the, what happened when the economy went south? Did Americans reach for their old Econ 101 text? No, they all went out and bought Ayn Rand novels. <laughs> to understand what was going on, and sales just went through the roof. Um, I mean, already very healthy half a million a year became something like one and a half million a year. Rose Friedman, the wife of uh, Milton Friedman. And when Milton got the Nobel Prize in 1976, the press said to Rose, how much credit do you think uh, you deserve, Mrs. Friedman? And she replied, well, I've always felt I deserve at least half the credit for everything he's ever gotten. And she was a PhD candidate in economics with him. It was only her marriage and pregnancy that stopped her actually finishing the last couple of chapters of her dissertation. So she was there with him intellectually. The reason they met was she was Rose Director. Her maiden name was Director. And uh, Jacob Viner, in his econ graduate class at Chicago, sat his students alphabetically. And Director came next to Friedman. And that's how they met and six years later uh, married. And she did contribute... Um, a great deal uh, to that partnership. Uh, Rosa Parks, I think, is fairly um, well known to all of you. Um, again, there's a Michigan connection, isn't there? What's the Michigan connection? I'm sorry? She moved to Detroit. She became, um, when uh, it was all over down in... Uh, Alabama, uh, her brother had fled up to work in the motor car industry and he begged her to, to get out because she was still 
facing uh, physical threats, even though she'd won. Uh, you know, there'd be likely to be a sniper's bullet through the front window. I mean, literally, a sniper's bullet or, um, or a brick or, or something, or a car would be tampered with. Or, or, and so, uh, and she came up to Detroit eventually, um, and, um, and um, worked for a local congressman uh, for many years. And uh, she was, um, he once joked that more people turned up at his office to, to her autograph and to have their photograph taken with her than turned up to see him. But he was a great admirer of And of course, when Martin Luther King, not Martin Luther King, who am I thinking of? Uh, Nelson Mandela. When Nelson, Nelson Mandela was freed and first came to the United States, he flew to Detroit. And uh, to her shock and uh, total surprise, he embraced her and was reported as saying, um, before King, there was Parks. There's another connection, and that is the, um, the bus. It's here in Michigan. It's at the um, museum in, um, in Dearborn. Um, purchased for um, when that bus was um, uh, declared redundant, uh, some police, uh, some um, staff of the bus company were told to dump it in a river. I mean, that was how environmentally conscious they were in those days. Uh, but they knew this policeman who'd said, next time you've got a bus to get rid of it, I'd like to take it and park it on my little small holding and store my chickens in it or, or something, something agricultural. And so it sat there for 30 years um, being used. And when he died, his children um, put, put it up for auction. And they had um, enough to prove that it really was, um, it really was that, that, that bus. And um, it was number 2857. Um, and you know how much it fetched? How much the museum paid for it? Half a million dollars. A rusty old bus. Finally, and I'll, we'll have 15 minutes of Q&A, Jane Jacobs, um, she changed the way we looked at cities. Uh, she wrote a great book, one of my five favorite books of all time in public policy, um, the, um, the Death and Rise of Great American Cities. Um, and um, changed the way we see cities. Took on the planners, saved New York from being Los Angelized. If it hadn't been for her, New York would not look like it. It would, it would look like Los Angeles. And greatly influenced um, generations of town planners. Uh, not uh, that you'd notice it in many cities, but things would be even worse on the town city planning front had Jane Jacobs not raised her voice. And finally, um, Dorian Fisher, a great philanthropist, who, uh, when she died, left her entire fortune uh, to free market-oriented think tanks. And the last lady in my book, Mildred Loving. Now, surely somebody in this room knows who Mildred Loving. She was from central Virginia. She was part Rappahonic, part black. Who said that? Loving versus Virginia. Are you at law school, sir? No. <laughs> I have a lot of things like that in my head. <laughs> uh, Loving versus Virginia. Mildred Loving made the 
incredible mistake of marrying a white man in 1962 or three, uh, when it was illegal. Not, not only in Virginia, but it was illegal in 17 states. Uh, basically from Maryland across and down to Texas, if you, if you do an arc, then anything below that, the 17 states below that, it was illegal um, for a white person to marry a black person. And she took it, and she was in prison, she was jailed, she was fined, um, she was sentenced to expulsion. She was expelled from the Commonwealth of Virginia for 25 years on pain that if she ever returned, uh, she would automatically get a five-year sentence inside. Um, she found a lawyer and she appealed. And she got all the way to the Supreme Court and when her lawyer delivered the, the paperwork, the, 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 the clerk uh, said, ha ha, we've been waiting for this one. And um, it went through very quickly. The Chief Justice Warren uh, reserved it to himself. Uh, a gentleman that uh, Chris and I know uh, called Benno Schmidt was the, um, was the clerk who was assigned to write uh, the, the opinion. And, um, the opinion was unanimous. And uh, the um, laws uh, banning interracial marriages were, were struck down. And Mildred was allowed to return uh, to central Virginia and uh, resume her life uh, there with her husband and her, her three children. Uh, so she's a very great woman who died uh, not that long ago. And um, the army, believe it or not, was probably the most active institution in seeing uh, this new um, decision of the Supreme Court enacted because a lot of the interracial marriages were happening on army bases in the South. Boy meets girl, typically black boy meets white girl at a dance locally. And, you know, nature kicks in. And um, these small town clerks um, weren't about to go marrying these. Uh, and uh, the army had a, a senior major and a, a JAG officer who spent years uh, flying uh, all over the south and walking into small town, towns and uh, uh, banging down the Supreme Court uh, decision in front of these uh, small town law clerks and um, enforcing uh, the, the justices' um, decision. So there it is, that's a snapshot of my 25, 27 ladies, uh, because we have two in one chapter and two in another, and a few others get walk-on parts. I've never actually counted, it's probably more like 35 ladies if I count all the walk-on parts. Um, and um, um, like uh, uh, Mike said, uh, we have a few copies for sale of both my Thatcher biography and the Ladies for Liberty book, uh, not very many. Um, but there's a card inside your paperwork, uh, and I encourage you to use Amazon uh, to, um, to purchase them rather than the bookshop or Barnes & Noble, so that my ranking at Amazon can hopefully... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We have a roving mic. The gentleman behind you... Um, I have to ask you a very personal uh, request that you put a f um, you put a footnote for Phyllis Schlafly. She hasn't died yet, but she's got to be mentioned in there for posterity. Thank you. Next question or comment, the lady, the lady over, the lady over.
Yes, I, I did in fact refer to yes. um, some newspaper yes. work. And so she wrote, it was, it was kind of like a farmer's wife yeah. column. Uh, and if you read that and then compare it to the, uh, the book, she can clearly tell that she was not author of the Yes, that's, in fact, I forget who the professor is, but there's a professor who's done whatever professors of English literature do. And uh, I think he's come, to, I think the, the proof is overwhelming on the first eight books, but they think that she, she got tired of, um, of this arrangement and that the ninth book in the series apparently reads as if it's by a different person. Then, of course, was the people that came along, actually from Reader's Digest, and who turned uh, her into a whole industry. The town where she was born and then the town where she settled both receive tens of thousands of visitors every year. Um, I forget their 800 numbers, but their 800 numbers for the tourism board are something like, you know, 1-800-VISIT-LAURA. And it's clear. In fact, before she died, people started turning up at her, on her doorstep. Um, and like I say, a whole industry um, developed uh, around her with the TV series. And we know the TV series will be on TV for most of our lives because they've got contracts out to the 2030s, 2040s, already in place to, sh to sh keep showing them. How significant do you think it would be for America to elect a female president? Not very. <laughs> um, I once asked Margaret uh, Thatcher, I said, uh, Margaret, um, well, actually, I didn't say Margaret. We all called her Lady T. Um, they get it wrong in the movie where they have different people on her staff saying Mrs. Thatcher and some saying Lady Thatcher and some saying Lady, you know, whatever. Everybody for the last 20 years of her life called her Lady T. I said, Lady T, um, are you more proud of being the first scientist to occupy 10 Downing Street or the first woman? And she nearly hit me. <laughs> she said, oh, first scientist, definitely first scientist. Um, to, to Margaret, being a woman was neither here nor there. I mean, you're either competent or you're, you're incompetent. Um, she never promoted a woman to cabinet. Um, there was one woman who briefly served in cabinet, but it was the one job in cabinet that Margaret couldn't really control, and that is um, the leader of the House of Lords. Their lordships elect each year their leader, and they went and elected a woman. And so what could Margaret do? So for two years, she had the Baroness Young. I think she hid her down the, where she couldn't see her. Just like Ted Heath, back in 1774, hid Margaret down the table. Uh, Margaret. Um, she promoted women to Undersecretary of State, Minister of State, but never actually into the cabinet. She never promoted a man with a beard. She didn't, didn't trust them. And she never promoted a man called Jonathan Aitken, even though he was arguably the most able politician of his generation and wrote a very famous biography of President Nixon um, because he had dated her daughter Carol and he dumped Carol and Margaret had found Carol at home crying. So for 15 years, from 1975 to 1990, Jonathan Aitken never got promoted because he, he made Carol cry. Um, no, I don't think it's important. I, I wrote an article about this actually on January the 18th, the Friday before uh, President Obama started his second term the following week, saying that I, I didn't think th these firsts, like the first black president or the first woman prime minister, uh, rarely lead to a 
a tsunami. Um, you know, the first Catholic president, well, we, we, I guess the current vice president is a Catholic, but um, I mean, 50 years ago, the first Catholic president hasn't exactly led to a, a tsunami of uh, Catholics knocking on the door. And I don't think um, you'll get the same with um, uh, black presidents or, or, or female prime ministers. And I think in the final analysis, it's, it, it, it doesn't, um, you know, it's who the person is. Do they have a strong moral compass? Do they have clear ideas? Can they articulate them clearly? Can they get, you know, it's, it's a whole raft of things. In my book on Thatcher, I have a chapter devoted to 10 principles we can learn from Margaret Thatcher. And um, I don't think, um, I, I don't think history would, you need somebody with principle. You don't need... Well, the big joke about Margaret Thatcher was, of course, that she was the only person in the cabinet who wore trousers. <laughs> <laughs> You've got this gentleman. Uh, question. Was, uh, wasn't Margaret Thatcher... Didn't she lose her power uh, because of the conservatives that basically gave her the boot from within her own party? Why was that? And then what was the reaction in general in England to the fact that there was no formal delegation sent to her funeral from the United States? Uh, on the latter, um, there was a very strong delegation of um, people, either retired um, Reagan-era cabinet members who had gotten there under their own steam, I would guess. Um, I saw, you know, Ed Meese, Jim Baker, um, George Schultz. Um, there was a whole bevy of those kind of people. And there was a whole bevy of people from the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. About five or... This thing's moving. <laughs> Doesn't have brakes. Um, there was a whole bevy of people from Heritage. And... Um, and people are in two minds. I mean, you know, I heard one Thatcherite conviction politician on TV, I forget her name, saying, you know, Lady T wouldn't have particularly relished having an Obama or a Clinton here. Thank you very much. Um, so uh, people were in two minds. What was the first question again? Oh, but forcing, forcing out. Um, it was a whole combination of, of factors. I mean, she'd been leader for 15 years. She had been prime minister for 11 and a half years. Uh, many, she'd had to sack a lot of people along the way. And of course, every sacked person thinks it's unfair. She'd underpromoted in, in the eyes of uh, many people, felt underpromoted, overlooked. Um, and she'd said she felt like going on and on and on. <laughs> And uh, there was no prospect of her uh, winning the next election and gracefully uh, making way for whoever. Uh, the Tory party was also uh, deeply admired in the public opinion polls. Uh, many uh, people felt that um, she really had dug herself um, a, a big hole. Uh, she felt that unless she was behind in the opinion polls halfway through each government, she wasn't doing a good job. Um, so she took a rather different attitude. Then there was this whole issue of the poll tax. She was trying to f reform the way local taxes were levied. 
and make them a lot fairer, but it allowed the, the left uh, a way in. And in the end, her cabinet, um, it wasn't her backbenchers, it was her cabinet that um, deserted her. And um, there was quite a lot of acrimony in the speeches on April 10th, which are all reprinted in my new book, uh, Remembering Margaret Thatcher, which is different from the current biography. I don't think we have Remembering Margaret Thatcher on sale here today. Um, there were a number of people who got up and said quite nasty things about those people who turned on her that night. Um, and um, they were basically her, cabinet, her senior cabinet members who one by one went to see her and said, Margaret, you can't win. And then her husband, to be fair, her husband chipped in. He said, give it up, love. You know, you've had a good run. <coughs> it's, it's time for us to spend some time together. So he counseled uh, that she should go. Um, they were of a generation which doesn't wear its um, emotions on its... Um, what's the phrase? You wear... Sleeves. Um, I, I, I think so. He was certainly extraordinarily supportive and loyal to her. He, he'd made a, a, a bit of money in business. He'd inherited a family business. And he built it up and sold it uh, to a bigger company and then went on the board of that bigger company and had a very active business career. So she never had to worry about money once she married, uh, married him. Um, uh, but he was immensely loyal and uh, very practical, uh, supporting her. Um, and I think he used to say, uh, always present, never there. Meaning he, he, he never uh, stole the limelight. He never said anything to the press um, that um, would, 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 get, would embarrass her. Um, um, one, one of the royals, uh, that, that one that was married to Prince Andrew, Fergie, Sarah Ferguson. Sarah Ferguson once said to Dennis, once sort of sidled up to Dennis at some reception, and said, um, trying to get his advice because you know Dennis and Margaret, it was Fergie and, and Andrew, so she was a sort of female in a similar role to Dennis was in. And she said, Dennis, don't you think I get a dreadful press? And Dennis looked at her and he said, Have you ever thought of trying to keep your mouth shut, Mom? <laughs> <laughs> he, he was very blunt. Um, he, he told it. Uh, he told it as he saw it. One last question. My question is: uh, What was Margaret Thatcher's relationship with uh, Pope John Paul II? Because you hear Mikhail Gorbachev actually outright said Ronald Reagan, the Pope, and Margaret Thatcher were part of the reason of the fall of communism. And we know Ronald Reagan had a relationship with the Pope, but never heard anything about uh, Margaret Thatcher's relationship with the Pope. Thank you. That's a very good question. I've never been asked that question before. Um, the honest answer is I'm not sure. I, I don't think there was much contact um, uh, between them. And they, they obviously, I mean, she was deeply Methodist um, in her upbringing. Uh, but when she married Dennis, there wasn't a Methodist church close by, but there was a low church of England, but low church, not high church. If it had been high church, she couldn't have stomached it. Uh, but it was low church, and that substituted for her Methodism. Um, 
and she didn't want the children growing up with dad going to one church and mum going to a different church. Um, I can't think offhand of any meetings even between them. Uh, there must have been um, messages between them. She was, of course, deeply popular in Poland. Um, they loved her in Poland. Um, in fact, my, my biography of Margaret Thatcher has come out in Poland, Romania, and China. And the Polish sales figures are, are, are astonishing. They're something like 8,000 hardback already. Um, and she was deeply popular with, and she knew the, the ship Lek Walenza, and she, she knew uh, pe people like that, and probably had you know, a route to the Pope, who um, was, of course, Polish, um, through, through people like that and through diplomatic channels. She was, of course, extremely close to Ronald Reagan. Uh, she knew Reagan before he became president and before she became prime minister. Uh, Dennis had spotted Reagan as a talent that she should get to know. And um, they had lengthy meetings. And then she was the first major leader to be invited to the White House at the start of the first Reagan term and the last at the end of the second Reagan term. She did about two years of Carter, eight years of, who, sh who didn't like her, by the way, Jimmy Carter complained he couldn't get a word in edgeways with her. Uh, she loved Reagan. Uh, Bush, number one, uh, she famously uh, was with him when, um, when Kuwait was invaded. And she famously said, George, don't you go wobbly on me. <laughs> Meaning, you know, you've got to be clear cut. You know, I was pretty clear cut on the Falklands. You've got to go in there and be clear cut here. Um, so... Um, a lot more is known about her relationship with Reagan than about anything to do with the Pope. But you're right, I mean, somebody just wrote a book called The President, the Pope and the Prime Minister. Would you thank me, uh, join me in thanking John Lundell? Thank you, John. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.